Good morning, OVC Radio. My name is Corey Rosen, and you're listening to the Story Podcast. Today, I have on a super awesome guest, Mr. Christopher Shi. But before we get into the episode, if you enjoyed this episode and want to support the podcast, be sure to like, comment, share, and let us know what you think. Today, I have on Mr. Christopher Shi, a physicist. Physician and pianist Christopher Shee has a remarkable dual career as both full-time practicing physician and actively concertizing pianist. Hailed by the New York Times as an intelligent and thoughtful musician with effortless performances and consummate control, he has performed in major venues worldwide and has soloed with numerous orchestras, including repeated engagements with the National Symphony Orchestra at the Kennedy Center Concert Hall in Washington, D.C. His performance with the National Symphony on the Capitol lawn for an audience of 50,000 prompted the Washington Post to declare if she is as gifted in medicine as he is in music, he has some serious career decisions to make. His performance was fluent, gracious, and miraculously light and a joy to the ear. Other other orchestral engagements include the Georgetown and Hart Arbor University of Michigan, New England Conservatory, Harvard Radcliffe, Newton, Lancaster, and Paris Guard Republican Symphony Orchestras. Christopher is the winner of the 6th Van Clyburn International Piano Competition for Outstanding Amateurs in Fort Worth, Texas. He was also a press and audience favorite at the Professional 10th Van Clyburn International Piano Competition. The Fort Worth Star-Telegram raved, he demonstrated a magical touch in voicing and a fine Chopin-esque Rubato, a total sense of style across three centuries. For she, technical control supports impeccable musicianship. Christopher is also the grand prize winner of the amateur competitions in Paris, Boston, and Washington, D.C. His playing and interviews have been featured in television and radio programs worldwide, including NPR's All Things Considered, APM's Performance Today, WGBH's Intervoice, WQXR, WETA, WGMS, WBJC, Radio France, Radio Classique, Canadian CBC, Taiwan CTV, and Pianist Magazine. Christopher is currently a board-certified gastroenterologist with U.S. with the U.S. Digestive Health in Lancaster, PA. He received his B.A. cum laude from Harvard University and his M.D. from the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. He did his internal medicine res- residency training at the University of Pennsylvania, and his gastroenterology fellowship training at Johns Hopkins. He is also active in community and charitable services, formerly sat on the GI Board Exam Committee of the American Board of Internal Medicine and is a fellow of the American College of Gastroenterology. An avid chamber musician, he regularly performs with world-class artists, ensembles, and principals of major orchestras across the nation. In recent season, he has appeared with violinists. Would you like to help me out? <laughs> Nurit uh, Bar Yosef, Alexander Carr, David Kim, Elizabeth Pitcairn, Michael Shee, and Scott Yu, uh, cellists Narek Haknazarian and Amit Pellad, clarinetist, clarinetist Anthony McGill, pianist John Kimura Parker, the American Daedalus, Dover, Escher, Miro, Pacifica, and Ying Quartets, and the String Quintet, Sybarite Five. He also serves on the board of directors for Chamber Music America. Be sure to check him out and all of his projects on his website in the description below. Chris, how are you doing today? Good, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, man. I'm really excited. 
You have an illustrious career, and I must ask, where did that start? <laughs> uh, <clears throat> so um, my mom started me on violin at four and then piano at five, um, along with a lot of other extracurriculars because my parents' philosophy was keep me busy and that'll keep me out of trouble. It's <laughs> a good philosophy to have. So um, growing up, I had a, um, a very good piano teacher who is you know strict and demanding so um my piano sort of excelled more than my other extracurriculars and um over the years i just decided to keep it as a as a hobby pretty serious hobby but at the same time i always knew i wanted to be a doctor so um you know for a long time i was able to just continue my studies to be a doctor and then keep playing piano on the side as a hobby and as time went on, I was fortunate enough to basically continue that pattern and do that for my, my livelihood. So how does one at the same time, because becoming a, a doctor in any kind of field is, is time, time right. expensive. How do you, uh, do you, were you doing gigs on the side? Were you doing, uh, were you just part of you know, the York Symphony? Or? Right, right, right. Well, uh, practically speaking, you know, when you're when you're a student, there are plenty of opportunities, whether they're, you know, student recitals or competitions or what have you. Um, so I, I kept doing that until, like I said, practically speaking, um, third year of medical school is when it kind of really gets tough and you really don't have time like beyond that. So third and fourth years of medical school, internship, residency, fellowship and starting a practice are probably the busiest times in the grand spectrum and you really don't have time to do anything else like significantly. So I did take a break from piano for about 10 years during that time. Wow. Um, but then once that was done and I had started to practice and I had started my family, um, lo and behold, there was this, um, this exploding amateur pianist scene. Um, there was... Um, the first big international piano competition for, for non-professional pianists was um, started in Paris mm. in the late 80s. And then it became very popular. And then the Van Cliburn Foundation um, liked what they saw. And they started their own um, amateur competition in the late 90s. And, of course, the Van Cliburn brand is, is very well known. Their professional competition has launched many major careers. So for them to take on the, the amateur um, circuit was kind of a big deal. And then a lot of people followed suit. There, there were amateur competitions popping up in many of the major cities, um, including Warsaw, the, the Chopin competition, which is also one of the biggest professional competitions out there. So this was happening right at about the time that I decided to get back into it. So it was a, it was a it was a nice opportunity to, to get my feet back in the water, so to speak. So how does one, over? because over 10 years, that's a long time uh, to not play an instrument. How did you get yourself back into, surely you didn't just jump into the competition. Right. No, it, it took a lot of work. And, and, you know, my skills had obviously declined quite a bit. Um, I had done small things here and there. Um, like I had performed with my wife a couple times, but nothing really... Um, you know, really heavy duty. Intensive. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a question. What's the difference between amateur piano and then like a professional piano? 
That's actually a very um, good and complicated and nuanced question because, you know, it's not like there's, like in sports where there's a defined professional track and defined amateur track because, um, you know, let's just face it, trying to make it, um, trying to have a successful career as a professional classical musician, um, any musician really, but especially classical musician is, is very challenging. Um, so there really is no formal definition. Sometimes what um, these competitions will use as a definition is, um, I think you don't make more than half your income from either teaching or gigging or performing, which is sort of arbitrary. Mm-hmm. Um, the truth is, you know, the, the rewards of winning an amateur, amateur competition aren't great enough for any true professional to consider it. So it's not usually an issue. It's just what, how you see yourself in the end, how you define yourself. Um, for a while, as I was studying and performing at a level that I thought was at a professional level, it did take a bit of soul searching to um, sort of acknowledge that I truly am an amateur. But if you can embrace the original concept of amateur, which is not that you're not good at it, but that rather that you do it for the love of it rather than to get a paycheck. So once I was able to embrace that concept, um, I was able to sort of go into it, you know, with full heart. No, that's a very good point to make. Uh, you have to understand where you are as a as a person in your particular field. An amateur doesn't mean that you're not good, that, you, that you're not, uh, quote-unquote, qualified enough to be a professional. It's just you're in the beginning of your career. You have – there's a lot of work to be done. There's a lot of people ahead of you, and there's, there's a few people behind you. But you're doing it for – a, the love of it. Two, you're, there's room to grow. And three, it's not, it, it's not a bad term to have. Right. right. Every, everyone has an amateur at some point. And, and what, as I got older, um, what I realized um, became more and more important to me was not about the fame or the personal recognition, but about uh, the music itself and exploring the music and mm-hmm. celebrating it and doing it justice and conveying the composer's intentions, and also collaborating with other really amazing musicians, um, which is what I focused on over the last few years. Let's focus, I'm going to focus on the, on the music you said. What are some of the research that you have to do when, you, when someone hands you a piece? Say it's uh, one of Chopin's or Liszt's pieces. What, what do you do immediately from there? Oh, that's, um, that's a great question. It's also very complicated um obviously there's a lot of practice but there's not just practice there's um trying to learn about the piece learn about the history of the piece learn about the um the circumstances under which it was composed as well as um you know it's controversial whether you should be listening to other people's recordings of that particular piece ideally you don't and you just bring whatever is personal to you but that's that's a little bit idealistic and sure if you're like one of the greatest of all time you could probably do that but for the rest of us i think if you can listen to a wide variety of different recordings then you won't be biased necessarily in one certain way so Mm -hmm. uh, for me that that helps with education and in the era of youtube which you know we didn't have growing up you can instantly have access to you know 20 different recordings of that piece and get a wide range of interpretations so i personally that can help me especially with chamber music 
um, most of the chamber pieces that I play, I they're they're well known war horses in the literature. But if there is something that I don't know well, I'll listen to at least four or five different recordings of it, and then I'll practice along with it with headphones to because you know you can't just hire a quartet to practice with you. So you know, learning the ensemble and how all the parts fit together is a huge part of that learning process. Absolutely. And there's, you speak of YouTube, but there's like Naxios or the Library yeah, of yeah. Congress and, and JDW Pepper. And there are so, there are so many ways you can grab a piece of music. And um, you're right. As you shouldn't, it is my opinion that one shouldn't, an amateur quote unquote pianist shouldn't uh, just take something and make it, make it, uh, without influence of other people. If you're George Gershwin, you can do whatever you want, right? <laughs> right. Or if you're uh oh, who's who's the who's the other one? Um Leo The other one like Le, Leo <laughs> uh Leonard Bernstein, that's what I'm trying to think. If you're Leonard Bernstein, you can do whatever you want with that piece. Uh and it'll be gospel. But um if you're and yeah, the other one who is a million other ones. Um but if if you are an amateur, take influence. It's that's and you can find your own style through that. You're going to find, oh, I actually like Leonard's uh, arrangement of this, or I actually like uh, this other pianist's version of this. And it's just all creating your own style, and it's becoming more informed and more contextualized and learning, oh, that's that phrase was done differently as opposed to this one. I like that one better. Right. I agree. There's no piece of art out there that hasn't built on what came before it. Absolutely. So... We talked about also performing with other people, like collaboration. How did that start? Certainly after 10 years of not being in the piano world at all, how does one get back into it and meet with all these high-level musicians? Right. Uh, Well, let me – I'll just um, tell you my own personal experience. So um, in terms of the timeline, um, I would say the first um, amateur competition that I did when I – decided to come back from that 10-year break was in 2006. Um, and um, the amateur competitions are, for, uh, for the most part, just solo piano mm. literature. Um, so I did that. I did the competition circuit, so to speak, from about 06 to 2011. 2011 is when I won the Clyburn Amateur. After that, there was a fair amount of um, press and um you know notoriety from that and um i was living in maryland at the time and there was a very um respected um a presenter there called candlelight concert society in columbia maryland and i had had a relationship with them and had done some small gigs for them but when i won the Clyburn, um they invited me to perform with one of their quartets they they um they're primarily a chamber music um, presenter. And um, so that was actually the first time I got to work with a high-level group, and that was actually the Pacifica Quartet, which mm. is the same group that I'm going to be performing with in a couple – or in a week. Is it, yeah. yeah in a, about so, yeah, about, about a, week. a week, yeah. And um, so it was kind of nice, like, coming full circle after a decade. But when I – so when I performed with them, I realized that one of the things I really loved about music making was being able to collaborate with other high-level musicians just because it's so inspiring and, and wonderful to do that. 
that in combination, I would say, with aging and declining skills, not that chamber music's easier, but <clears throat> it's less demanding in the sense that you have support around mm-hmm. you. You know, um, so I found that to be more fun than getting on all alone and solo and naked to do a, a you know a solo recital. Where a mistake is very noticeable. Very noticeable, exactly. Yep. So I decided. And then, for the, so for the next decade, this past decade, I, I focused mainly on collaborative projects. So from Pacifica, how do you get up to these other orchestras? And so yeah, that's um, that's that's a good question. I I'm not a professional, so I don't have professional management. So every single one of my concerts or gigs or performances over the years, whatever you call them, has had its own I call organic genesis. It just it comes about for a reason. It's not, um, you know, I'm, I don't do it for money. So I'm not just taking like a series of gigs for, for the paycheck. Each one has a very special meaning to me. Mm. Um, you know, a year after the, my first Pacifica gig, we moved to Lancaster. And I would say a big part of um, my performance opportunities over the past decade has been because of LBC and the Trust. Okay. So I got to meet... Um, you know, the Bigleys and Rob Bigley, who runs the trust, and they put on such a, a high-level um, series with, with just amazing artists. And, um, you know, my collaboration and friendship with Rob, um, I've gotten over the years to, um, through the trust's series to work with a lot of great artists. So what do you think would be the future for you, if you in, in, in terms of piano? Well, that's, that's a different story. So mm-hmm. when I alluded to my <clears throat> declining physical skills, in, in the past couple years, it's actually manifested it as something very specific known as focal dystonia. Um, it is a neurologic condition. I, I want to say mine's not serious. Mine's not like I can still do my day job. I can still perform endoscopy, which is a big part of what I do as a gastroenterologist. But it's enough that I, I mean, to put it simply, I'm just not as good of a pianist technically as mm-hmm. I once was, and I can't play the really challenging repertoire anymore. Um, so um, because of that, I've decided that this, this upcoming performance with the Pacifica will probably be my last for a while. Mm. I'm going to take a break from it just because um, the condition has gotten to such where I can prepare for a concert, but it takes, I would say, 10 to 20 times the amount of effort to get it done and get it to a high level that it used to. And that's just too exhausting with everything else going on. So maybe I'll do one or two projects every three to four years from now on. That's probably what what's going to happen. So let's talk about more about this 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 final last hurrah yeah. if, a little bit. Oh, yeah, sure. So... Um, a couple years ago, the um, Pacifica Quartet won yet another one of their many Grammys. And um, my, I have three daughters, and they all attend or have attended Lancaster Country Day School. On social media, uh, Lancaster Country Day School posted something along the lines of congratulations to the Pacifica Quartet and to Austin Hartman, LCDS alumnus, for winning a Grammy. And my wife and I looked at that, and we were like, what? You know, I, 
I had no idea because, so when I worked with the Pacifica 10 years ago, two of their members were different. Mm. And over the last decade, um, two of their members switched. And Austin was one of those members. So I didn't, I didn't know. I mean, I knew of the transition, but I didn't know anything about him. So lo and behold, he is a, a Lancaster Country Day School alumnus. And so as soon as we saw that, and that was about the time that LCDS was um, inaugurating their brand new performing arts center, the Gardner Theater, um, my wife, she, she made sure I gave her credit for this idea, came up with the idea that we should do a collaboration with them because I've worked with Pacifica before. We now have a violinist in their group that's an alumnus of LCDS. I, I'm a parent of LCDS and I'm involved in the arts scene here. Let's do a concert in their brand new Gardner Theater with the Pacifica Quartet. And so uh, we pitched it to Country Day and they loved the idea and now we're here. So what will all of that entail uh, content-wise? Okay, so a typical string quartet with a guest pianist format uh, goes on the first half they do two string quartets and then there's intermission and then I join them for the second half with a what's called a piano quintet basically a, a string quartet two violins viola and cello plus me on the piano very nice and so what what kind of genres can I assume it's all going to be quartet material but within that is it going to be romantic classic modern um if I'm if I'm not mistaken, their first half, they're playing a string quartet by Florence Price, which is um, a little bit outside of the standard repertory. Mm -hmm. She was, uh, of course, um, um, a really underrated, underrecognized African-American composer who wrote some really beautiful music. Absolutely. Um, so they're doing one of her string quartets, and then they're doing, I think, a Prokofiev string quartet. And then... What I'll be joining them with is the Dvorak Piano Quintet, which is sort of one of the very classics of the Romantic literature. Awesome. And that'll be October 15th? 15th. At what time? 8 p.m. at Lancaster Country Day School's Gardner Theater. So be sure to check that out. Let's go more into your career side. How, how has your career impacted your playing? How has your playing impacted your career? What are some of the benefits that you can see cross-pollinate between each other? Right. Well, for me, the, I get this question a lot, um, understandably. And for me, personally, what I like the best about it is the ability to shift gears from one or the other. Because, you know, I can't imagine a medical career without um, an artistic Outlet. decompression. Yeah. And likewise, I can't imagine doing music full time without you know, medicine to go back to. So I like the balance. I like being able to go back and forth. I like, because, you know, doing that prevents me from becoming too jaded with either one. Mm. There's a reason I didn't want to become a professional musician is because I don't think I love music enough to do it 24-7. I get sick of it, frankly, right. when doing it too much. Um, and, you know, there's this famous Isaac Stern quote, you know, unless you can't live and breathe without music, don't go into it. <laughs> and that was very good advice. Absolutely. There's always, and it's always uh, a little bit of a trope sometimes that if you push a kid too hard or if you push too hard, something, there's always burnout, right? And then they become against the very idea of practicing or right. playing or, or doing anything. Right. And that's, that's the challenge with classical music because let's face it, it's not, you know, 
it doesn't win you popularity points growing up. You're not like the star Mm -hmm. athlete. You're not the rock star. You're you're kind of like the loner who has to sit in their room practicing hours on end. Um, So it is challenging. And that, you know, that's why not everyone knows classical music, but there's still a lot of incredible talent out there despite all that. And not only that, but it's so rigid. There's you, what's written on the page, and you have to play it like that. Right. Uh, you might get the odd solo here or solo there, but in terms of improvisation, there is none for the most part. Well, there's not none, but right. there, there's, it's limited. Um, there are quite a few talented musicians out there who incorporate improv into their performances. It, it's rare, but there are there are there are a few. Cool. So. What has been one of the more exciting performances that you have done? Oh, that's impossible to answer. I've had so I've, I feel like the luckiest man alive. Uh, literally, like in the last ten years, the amount of collaborations I've had the opportunity to to be involved with is just it's mind boggling. So, I mean, literally everyone has been exciting. Um, I mean, maybe I'll just throw one out there just because you know it's local. I performed with the Lancaster Symphony a few years back and that was that was really thrilling. Um, I love that. But I can't there's no way I could single out one group or one artist because they're all just so amazing. How about this then? What is what is what do you think has been the top thing that you've learned from playing with such high level musicians? Uh, there's so many, but I would say <clears throat> um, just as a general rule of thumb for me, um, humility you know, um, it's not about you or me or the individual. It's about the music, and it's about doing the music justice and, um, you know, conveying the composer's intentions and making the audience feel the same way that the same passion that we feel about this music. So what is it like for you to prepare for um, – are you an introvert? I know we kind of already covered this question, but I want to ask in a, in a different context. Are you an introvert, or are you dead? did you ever have stage fright? How do you prefer, prepare for a performance of, like, 50,000 people? Is that different than any other performance, or is that something you have to build up inside of you? I mean, those are really good questions. Ideally, it makes no difference if you're playing in your living room versus playing for 50,000, because, again, it's about the music. Right. Now, practically speaking, <clears throat> sure, you get nervous when it's a, it's a big, important venue. Um, I've always suffered from nerves my whole life. I, I was just talking about this with my wife. I think I have elements of both being an introvert and being an extrovert, depending on my mood or the situation. Mm-hmm. But yeah, stage fright has, I've always struggled with that um, to the point where I used to take beta blockers, you know, which is actually fairly common. They, we talked about in that in my NPR interview at length. Um, it's controversial. I'm on a beta blocker now daily because... Because of just from for some heart stabilization issues, nothing nothing serious, but um, I would say over the years I've learned to the nerves have gotten a little better, um, especially because I'm mainly doing collaborative um, projects and chamber music, and so that takes off some of the pressure. And now I've I've done so much of it that it's it's not quite as frightening. Mm. Um, let's just face it: there's no substitute to volume and quantity of experience and performing that's really the only thing that's going to help you with your nerves absolutely yeah if you are wondering how to face an audience at all 
just got to start doing it. That's right. There's, you can, it's the same kind of concept. You can be book smart and absolutely anything, but the real teacher, the real lesson happens when you're in the operating room, when you're in front of that group of people that you are scared to death to play for, when you are in front of that job interviewer saying, okay, what's this, this, and that about you? Right. There is no other substitute other than experience. And that is the goal of life, essentially. Right. So tell me, how did you get to up to NPR, to all of these different radio stations and elsewhere? Well, as I alluded to, a lot of that occurred in 2011 when I won the Clyburn because there was some degree of national exposure. Um, but then they happened over the years, you know, people hear about me through a friend and like you yeah, <laughs> yeah. invite me to be a, so just again just every every project like I said has an organic genesis and there'll be an LNP article coming out later um, I think next week about the upcoming gig hmm. um, <clears throat> you know and I've done projects over the years in Lancaster that has you know generated some attention so it just it depends on what's what's being done and the excitement level behind it so here's the here's the question uh you you have your own website is that not being a quote-unquote professional pianist you are mainly or you had mainly been getting gigs through people reaching out to you have you ever uh done the inverse or have wanted to do the inverse of reaching out to somebody, some some other who, and uh, collaborate with them? Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, I wouldn't say it's mostly from other people reaching out to me. I mean, it's a combination. Okay. It's, like I said, every gig I have has its own unique evolution. Um, you know, through the trust, it would be because, you know, um, that's what they do. They perform, they present high-level artists. And there may be a reason why there's some group that I think is very interesting and I'll pitch it to Rob. Or, um, you know, um, I just, I can give you examples of how, like the example of how the first Pacifica gig evolved. I explained that with the Candlelight concert series. Um, just off the top of my head, um, you know, and things like lead into each other, right? The more mm -hmm. people you know, the more opportunities you get. So I um because I had worked with the Pacifica and a couple other groups, the the manager of of those groups um, reached out. To, he was on the board of Chamber Music America, so he invited me to join the board of Chamber Music America. Once I joined, I met someone else who ran another music festival, and as I got to know her, she invited me to perform in that music festival. So, you know, the, these are just some examples that I can think of off the top of my head of how these gigs evolved. What is it like to be on the board of Chamber Music America? Uh, it's, it's great. What, is, it's what, great. Is, what does that entail? Or... <clears throat> well, well, I should start with what is Chamber Music America? That's what I uh, Chamber Music America is the national service organization uh, for chamber music professionals. It, it, it represents their interests. It gives them a forum to, to be seen and heard. It presents a national conference once a year where there are performances and lectures and events, and they award millions of dollars worth of um, grants and financial aid to struggling artists. And so, so, so the board, you know, it's, 
well, it's you have the formalities of being a board member, which you know everyone has to sit through. But for me, <laughs> the fun is being able to meet people and interact with people. Like three of the board members are, you know, are genius grant winners. You know, and and so just meeting these brilliant people and then going to the conferences and and hearing the performances of up and coming art, both up and coming as well as established artists, is is awe inspiring. So, how would you suggest? people who want to get into this classical space, how would you suggest that they do that? You mean specifically Chamber Music America? Um, they can just join. Yeah, they can just join, but yeah. more of like the classical sphere. Um, say a person's been being trained through college, and yet, because oh. one thing I've noticed uh, that colleges sometimes don't do the best of, right, right, is right. say, okay, you have this training, where to now? Yeah, well, that's not... That, that's a very, very difficult question. Absolutely. And, and that's one of the big struggles with, I mean, musicians in general, but again, especially classical musicians. I think if you're well-trained and you're, um, you're an instru- a non-piano instrumentalist, you always have the option of trying to audition for an orchestra. That's a sort of an established career path. Um, that's not easy. That's very challenging. Um, and then you have the competition route. You know, that's why a lot of young musicians come out and they just start doing competitions because they get recognition that way then they get if, if they do well they may get concerts they may get management and then and then finally teaching you know if you have a degree you can get a teaching position so a lot of times I mean unless you're really like the top handful of people who can make a living purely from concertizing you have some combination you have a teaching position you play concerts um, you do gigs you know you do a combination of everything to, to make ends meet do you think you'd ever go into teaching? No. Piano? No. No? <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I don't see myself as a teacher. Plus, mm-hmm. I, I don't, I mean, I don't have a degree. You know, I do, this is a hobby. I don't feel necessarily qualified to, to teach. You know, I, I, I never went through the formal study process myself. I took lessons, but I, I was never enrolled in a conservatory. And I would never have the need to because... You know, my supplemental income is through medicine. <laughs> right. So you mentioned uh, having a family. How does one balance, because this is, you already have a work extensive uh, day job, as it were. How do you balance your family life with your concert life with uh, your job? Well, um, the answer to that has kind of evolved over the years because when the kids are younger, they're much more needy. Yeah, and time-consuming and but I mean I'm I'm lucky my kids have been just fantastic from the very beginning so I would say they're quite independent Hmm. um so you know my typical day I I, let's just say I work eight to five I come home have dinner uh, spend some time with the family help out with some chores then I may go practice for a couple hours and then go watch some tv with my wife and go to bed. There's plenty of time. I mean, when people say they don't have time for something, it doesn't mean they don't actually have time. It means it's not a priority. Right, right, of course. You can always make time for something. Right. Um, what do your children think about you performing with all these crazy uh, ensembles? Well, um, you know, my wife is a professional musician as well. Hmm. She is a violinist, and she, um, she has a, a busy studio, and she performs with the Lancaster Symphony Orchestra, with Allegro, with um, and she teaches in a lot of uh, the venues here. So she is active in music here in Lancaster as well. So 
naturally with us both being musicians, uh, musicians, my kids ended up being musicians as well. So they're all, you know, I would say not necessarily career track musicians, but they're all pretty serious musicians. Um, and we've done collaborations together. Like for instance, we performed a mini quartet concert over the pandemic, Mm. um, which was online. Um, so they've basically grown up with my musical activities. Um, and, um, um, so yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, that's what we do. We're, we're, you know, we're musicians at any time you come to our house in the evening, there are like three or four different instruments being practiced in cacophonous ways all throughout the house. That's gotta be fun. <laughs> I mean, it's slightly maddening. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of my musician colleagues would have very similar experiences. It's just, it's different than, you know, it's like I said, it's what we do. Like right. some families are sporty families. Like that's, right. that's what they're just doing sports all the time. So, so you, you you talked about in the bio that you've been uh, to different countries and what 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 nots. What are some of the main differences, or maybe some of the surprising similarities between uh, musicians of different backgrounds, different nationalities, if at all? Um, there used to be a stereotype in classical music that Asians were more mechanical and less musical, and I think really if yeah, back I would say maybe in the seventies and eighties, okay, which. I don't think that was ever true, but if it was true, it certainly is not anymore. Um, Asians completely dominate the classical music world. That's probably know if the stereotype. Seen... It's the other way yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I don't know if you, if you follow any of the major competitions and so forth. There is a large percentage of Asians. So no, I don't think there's any difference in music making because there shouldn't be any difference in the aesthetic. Mm. Maybe maybe one day long ago, your nationality played a role in how you approached and interpreted pieces probably in large part due to your mentorship. But nowadays um, it's so international and, um, you know, so I don't think that makes a difference. Fair enough. What are some of the culture shocks you've seen because you went to certain different countries? Well, for instance, in Europe, classical music is much more popular than it is here. Is it really? Yeah. Like you can, like there'll be billboards for, operas and the classical music stars on like their their buses and so forth really yeah and um so in in that sense it's it can be more rewarding um to have a career there which is why a lot of people do that um i don't think classical music is nearly as well appreciated in this country and it makes sense because not a lot of classical composers came from this country right. it's all jazz <laughs> right right so i mean that's that's one notable notable difference um I think audiences in Europe tend to be more appreciative. Um, they really, they, they tend to be more knowledgeable. Um, like the Paris competition that I alluded to, that was really a phenomenal experience. Um, not that it wasn't great here, but I just think it's more pervasive there. Mm. That's really interesting to think about. So over this large amount of experience and time what are some of the most memorable lessons uh that you've learned besides being humble like you said earlier um uh i i think that's that's really the main thing for me and um i think what ties into that is really learning to listen well both to what your collaborators have to say as well as what they're playing. Um, that is, I think, one of 
the most important skills is to to really listen and to be able to kind of gel your own uh, playing and ideas and vision with theirs. A lot of people don't realize the extensive amount of listening musicians have to do to each other. Yeah. Um, if you, a regular layman, shall we say, wouldn't know up on stage, oh, that pianist is listening to the violins, is listening to the horns, is listening to whatever section is playing, and meshing and matching their own volume and their own control with them at all times. Right. It, if you are a solo musician and want to get into collaborative work, you need to learn, especially uh, outside of classical, because classical is just notes, it's kind of sort of notes on the page. Uh, but if you're a gigging musician, learn how to play with other ensembles, because if you play with a bass guitar or a, a bass section, string section, lay off the bass. <laughs> or if you're, you know, find, find the frequencies that, where you can fit in and really shine or add as opposed to muddy. Right. And, you know, like improv- improvisatory jazz collaborations always blew me away because, I mean, and I know it's, it's, a, it's a skill like anything else, but it just, I just never understood how they could, like they could be making things up and not have any idea where it's going to go. And yet it gels perfectly. I just, I, that always blew me away. It's magic, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Truly, it's, it's some kind of magic that only a few people possess and do properly. Uh, that's that's something I've been trying to work on. Is my as a music composer, improvisation is the ultimate comp- composing because you're in the moment composing things. You've got no idea where it's gonna go, and it's got you got to make it sound good. And sometimes it doesn't sound good, and that's okay. <laughs> At that point, you just call it jazz, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. So, what is one of the uh, having these concerts? What are, what are some of the the worst things? Worst case scenarios that can happen. Uh, everyone has seen the uh, the occasional all strings break on a violin. What is that worst case scenario for a piano? Uh, I mean, knock on wood, I have not had a a terrible worst case scenario experience yet in any of my collaborations. Knock on wood. I, I hope you didn't just jink. Or I didn't just jink myself. I have. Uh, in solo performance, I've, of course, I've had memory slips. I've had all the usual things that everyone dreads, wrong notes, et cetera. But in collaborative, I've been, I've been lucky. I would say in recent memory, the worst thing, it's not even a bad thing, but a, a funny thing that happened was um, someone's cell phone going off in the audience. Of course. And, um, you know, there's so many videos out there of people, of musicians taking that and running with it, like starting to play the ringtone. Play the ringtone, yep, yep. Instrument. So I actually got a chance to do that a little bit. <laughs> it was kind of fun. Uh, well, that, that's honestly that's where I think uh, a lot of classical musicians or a lot a lot of uh, the more quote unquote professional musicians get a lot of can have a lot of fun with. Right. Who wants to go to a concert and get scowled for right. you know a, a relatively silly mistake as of forgetting to put your phone on vibrate or whatever? Right. I, have. Or at least it has been a stereotype. The classic musicians are, you know, they sit up straight, they don't sway around with the music, and they scowl at anybody who's, you know, right. le- quote unquote lesser than them. Well, I mean, I think there has been a paradigm shift over the years. I mean, I think a lot of my colleagues in the industry recognize that that kind of, you know, 
unflexible stiffness is one of the things that turn people off. So Absolutely. I, I do think there there's a shift in attitude. I mean, I do think there's still people that are going to be like that. And mm-hmm. honestly, I can see both sides. You know, you oh, yes. you want to you want a quiet, appreciative audience to respect all the work that you've put in. On the other hand, you know, you still have to... We're humans. Yeah, yeah we're humans, and you have to have fun with it. In the end, it, you know, it's about enjoying the experience. So I, I do think people are lightening up in that regard. That's awesome. That's good. <clears throat> so what do you do when, uh, as a soloist, how do you take a mistake? How do you combat that for, uh, forgetfulness, that memory step, oh, I forgot this passion. What do you do? Because I imagine uh, you don't have the sheet music in front of you at the moment. Well, uh, that's one of the benefits of chamber music is that you do have the you music do, in right. front of you. Yeah. And so my easy answer to that is I, I don't do solo anymore. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's face it, it, I mean, everyone will tell you memory becomes a, just a huge problem as you get older. Um, so again, my simple answer is that I'm focusing on chamber projects rather than solo stuff where you have to memorize everything. That's fair enough. And if you do uh, make a mistake, brush past it. Because it, if you linger on that one mistake, more mistakes will come. Yeah, there's definitely an art to covering up mistakes. Um, oh, I do have an um, um I forgot about this example. It, this is just recently. Um, I was doing a, 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 a forehand collaboration meaning two people sitting at a piano and um you know um the mod in modern day i just switched over a few years ago but we used to have you know paper sheet music but now most musicians have switched over to ipad with um page turner pedal i don't oh, know really yeah i don't know how familiar with that it uses bluetooth technology that's cool so you have a, a big ipad and then you're playing whatever you're playing and then you can tap the pedal with your foot to turn the page that's so cool so um <clears throat> I, I feel like I have a technology curse. Like I'm blessed in every single thing in life except for technology. Technology always fails me. So my first pedal failed me during a concert. Luckily, it wasn't during a part that was critical. So I was able to uh, actually switch it uh, back off and on. to get it. So then I got rid of that pedal and I, had, I got a new pedal, which was working fine. But in this most recent gig, this was a forehand piece. So I'm sitting all the way to the left of the piano. And it's all dark. They, this mm. was um, the concert. They, they, they darkened it at this particular moment for effect. Mm. And, and the, the stagehand had put my pedal down where he thought it belonged. But because of the angle that I was sitting at, because it's a forehand thing, it was at the wrong angle. And my foot was hitting the reverse button. Oh, no. So, yeah, this actually happened. And this was with a very, very well-known pianist. And... <laughs> We were going the wrong direction, <laughs> and we were—I was freaking out. But he kept his cool and just managed to, during a free moment, use his hand to manually turn the page. So we got through that. But that was a situation where we had to cover up mistakes <laughs> in a slick manner. Absolutely, <laughs> and kudos to that uh, pianist who. Yeah, uh, that's something that comes with experience as well. Right. You exactly. Can, if he, if you have a, a an artist who, it's very. Sometimes it's very clear to you that something is going wrong, but if they're calm, right. cool, collected, you you're in good hands. Right. Well, that, that's. I mean, my daughter said, "Oh, I didn't even notice anything." Happened. Right. Exactly. Um, but luckily, we had another performance the next night, and I was able to make sure that the pedal was rotated to the proper position. Absolutely. Make sure you always prepare ancestral equipment <laughs> before you go live. That's something 
I have learned uh, the, the very hard way as well. Right, right. Um, and being cool, calm, collected is a skill that takes mistakes to build up. That's right. And experience. Absolutely. Like I didn't, because I haven't done a ton of forehand stuff, so I just couldn't have the foresight to think that maybe he put it in that position. And because it was completely dark, I couldn't see it. Right. So. That's cool. You live and learn. Live and learn. What is the different techniques they have to do for forehand as, a, as opposed to regular two-hand? It's mainly physical because, like, <clears throat> there are times where your hands are crowded, so you have to know where to tuck in one finger, mm. move your elbow. like, And then so those are the kind of collaborative things you have to choreograph, basically, to, to make it successful. That would be a really funny bit to, <laughs> to make uh, all the mistakes, uh, you know, bumps an elbow. I'm sure, there are, I'm sure there are bits out there. Between, it has to be between uh, Victor Borg and who, whoever else. Yeah. <laughs> so, of all this time, uh, what what is one of the best pieces of advice anyone has ever given you? Well, um, I don't think I have a a panned answer for that one. Mm. I just think there, um, there's no, there's no one overarching magical piece of advice you just have to learn from all of your experiences um well, there's a piece of advice right there okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, i mean for me i mean i think everybody is different in terms of what their one most important piece of advice is because everyone has different tendencies towards mm. what their their weaknesses or, or their flaws might be um i think humility is an important one for me because when I was younger, you know, I was brash and brazen and cocky and, you know, thought I, you know, could conquer the world. But again, with with age and 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 wisdom and what I've learned over the years, that that's that's not what's important in life. Well, and oftentimes that kind of personality uh, lessens your opportunity. Yeah. Uh, so what were some of the ways that you dealt with uh, that ego? How, how are some of the ways that you humbled yourself? Was that a, you mentioned soul searching earlier. Um, what were some of the processes you had to go through or deprogram in yourself, if at all? Again, it just it took time. And, and it took life experience to understand what's really important to me. For instance, um, my family is by far the most important thing to me. And that really had very little to do with me. I mean, <laughs> my kids are amazing because they're amazing and because of my amazing wife who raised them really well. So, you know, you become appreciative of that. I'm, I'm appreciative for so many things, for um, my family, for my job. I, I love my job. I have incredible job satisfaction. I moved here from Maryland because of the job. And... I'm incredibly grateful for all the good fortune I've had in music. I mean, I could never have imagined, I don't know, let's say 30 years ago, that I would have this incredible secondary career of being able to collaborate with the best musicians in, in, in the world. Like, I, am, I have nothing but gratefulness in me for everything that I've been blessed with in this life. What is... No, I'm stumped. <laughs> well, because you're you're absolutely right. It's it's a. You have to not be self centered, 
And that is one of the hardest lessons for anybody to learn who is very self-centered, uh, is to realize that, oh, uh, there are other people in the world. <laughs> and, I mean, I don't know how to give advice because right. everyone says it's a good attitude to have to be humble and thankful for what you have. But for me, it's not, it's not just attitude. It's the fact that I am actually that blessed, and I don't mm-hmm. know how I got so lucky. And so I don't know how to give advice. I just got lucky. That's, that's the bottom line. That's fair enough. And luck is, I, I said this a little bit earlier, but luck is preparedness meets opportunity. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So be sure to, where can people find you and uh, your projects and everything that you do? Uh, where can they find me? Is that what you said? Yep. Well, my website's up to date, so that's probably the best. So that's Christopher dot com. Please be sure to check him out and check out the the concert happening October 15th, 15th, 8 p.m. at Lancaster Country Day School. It'll be great. Uh, tickets are reasonable. Uh, the Pacifica is amazing. Grammy um, Award winning uh, quartet. And it'll be my last local performance in a while. <laughs> so be sure to check him out there. If you want to check us out, you can check us out at The Story. Corey Rosen, just look that up anywhere you do your streaming on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. Uh, YouTube, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, all the great places that you would ever go. And make sure if you like this episode, you share, subscribe, like, comment. And if you really want to help us out, please do leave a review. Those really help us out in the ranking and help people watch that would otherwise not know we exist. Upcoming, tomorrow we have my episode with Andrew Pauls coming out. We have, On Sunday we have... Celtic punk rock band Hold Fast to come and talk about their uh, their band and their experience and how they all got together. And then Monday will be the 100th episode with a, a live panel Q&A session uh, between me and a few other previous guests and friends of the podcast. Be sure to check all that out. And with all that said, I hope you guys have a wonderful rest of the day. We'll see you guys later. Bye.